Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. In this episode, we speak with a young breast cancer survivor, April Stearns from California. She is also the founder and editor of the Wildfire Magazine and a podcast called The Burn, both dedicated to women under 40 who have had breast cancer. We talk about her experiences as a patient and caregiver, survivorship in the seven keys, and the healing power of writing and storytelling. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. April, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. We're so excited to meet you, April. April, if it's okay with you, let's just jump right in. You are a breast cancer survivor, but a bit unique as you were diagnosed young at age 35. And then when that happened, you had just had a child. So what was that like? Oh my gosh. Life-changing, life-changing for sure. Um, So yes, I was 35. It was 2012. I was one of the women um, that I've now come across in the community who found their lump themselves while breastfeeding. So of course I assumed it was milk related. My OB assumed it was milk related, but she was wonderful and set me on the path of getting the diagnosis that I ultimately received, which was stage three C HER2 positive breast cancer. And so at that point, I was just um, really focused on getting back to the business of parenting. I, you know, like you said, I had a little one and I had a relatively young marriage. I all the, all the things of life were happening. I didn't want to be doing breast cancer too. So I spent about 13 months in treatment and, and discovered I wasn't the same afterward, long story short, I guess. And I also read that this isn't your first experience with cancer. Your grand, you lost your grandmother to breast cancer as a teen as well. You know, it was interesting because she was my dad's mother. And of course I was always asked at every doctor appointment if there was cancer in the family, but every time I mentioned that she was on my paternal side, it was dismissed. So I wasn't necessarily thinking of her, thinking of her cancer all the time in the way someone who might know they had a a genetic predisposition was, but it did lodge in the back of my mind. And I'll tell you, I often caught myself thinking, don't get attached to these breasts. They, these might not be here forever because of her experience. And so when cancer did come along, of course, she was top of mind. She passed away when I was 18 and that hung over my family as I had to tell them what I was about to go through. And I do remember how heartbroken my dad was when I had to tell him that now I had breast cancer too. Yeah. I had read an article that, um, you were interviewed for and was aware of your story and, uh, yeah, how your dad was sandwiched in between his experience with his mom and then his, uh, relatively young daughter. Um, How scary that must have been for your entire family. Yes, it, it really, it was a really surreal kind of time to have this happening, especially on top of the celebration of a new family member coming into the family too. And it was also 
five years, I believe five years exactly after the death of my mom. So there was a lot of things kind of happening, you know, all at once. And then two years after my diagnosis, my dad was also diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So it was, it was a year or many years of so much change and heartbreak and, um, having to pull together for each other as well. I was just wondering if, you know, I try to put myself in the shoes of someone who's just beginning the journey because so much of my work is from the perspective of end of life. Mm-hmm. And so it's with, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty that I hear all these stories, but I don't really get to speak to people who have survived uh, mm. an illness and who can talk about what it was like at the beginning. I'm curious about at what point did your mind, if it did, wander into the darkest possibilities? Mm. I think almost immediately, mm-hmm. because when I was going through diagnosis, I didn't know, I, you know, I had that ignorance to know what was in store for me, but the, some of the people that I was surrounded by in, in a clinical setting were showing me by their facial expressions and their words and, and condolences that I was on a path that was unfortunate. I will never forget going through the biopsy itself, how, um, you know, the doctor was talking to me on one side of the the table I was laying on. And on the other side was, um, I I think a nurse, you know, someone who was helping and she was kind of picking through, I think the, the tissue, she was crying doing that. And she was offering, I didn't know her, but she was offering to babysit my child. And, um, so I was immediately struck by how serious the diagnosis was. And so I do remember a lot of late nights feeling so sad and guilty, especially for my child, that I was the one who had brought this big thing, this big bad into our house. And, um, yeah, I think it took a really long time actually to have hope. It it was from the very start, a devastation that I was experiencing. April, did you assume that the end point was going to be death? I think I did because my only experience of breast cancer to that point was my grandmother who had passed away. And I didn't see any other young people. When I looked around, it took a long time, several years to see other young people. So I think my mind did that math and just assumed that that was what was going to happen to me. I will say my, my, although grave, my oncology team was very optimistic and I did the path of having chemo first and then my surgery. And so I early on got really good news that my cancer had had a full, um, response to chemo, but even then I still was looking for the other shoe to drop. Um, yeah. Were you able to let go of that dark cloud ever? Like, have you let go of that? Such a good question. So we're talking 10 years now after my diagnosis and it's, by the way, 
Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an interesting year because I was surprised at how much grief I had coming into this 10 year mark and it happened in March. And, um, so it's been a few months now that I've been kind of assimilating this and I had to tell my family, I want to celebrate, but I can't yet. Like I need to feel kind of all the feelings. And I was so fortunate that my family was okay with that, you know, and they, they waited until I was ready to celebrate. But I think part of it is because I haven't fully let go of, of the knowledge that I, I won't know if I survived it until I pass from something else. And because I've stayed in the community, I am losing friends in, I I just lost a friend, um, two days ago. So I'm losing people all the time. And that makes it hard to feel like I'm only on the other side of that coin, you know? Mm -hmm. I bet sometimes it's like, you're looking in the mirror almost like, am I going to be next or sure. Absolutely. I will say, you know, some people might listen to this and feel like, well, why would you stay in, in cancer then, you know, if it's so devastating, but I actually have more hope and more, um, less fear, I guess being Mm -hmm. in it. I understand that it could come Mm -hmm. back at any time. My, my grandmother actually was 10 years post her diagnosis when hers came back. Mm -hmm. So this year carries that weight for me too, Mm -hmm. but because I have seen so many people live so fully, even with a metastatic diagnosis, it's taken some of the fear out, hasn't taken the reality out of it, but for me, it's given me actually some solace to stay. I know you've listened to our podcast a bit and I wanted to talk about some of the keys, but I just wanted to get your impressions first of what you think of our podcast and the waiting revolution and the seven keys and what we're trying to do upstream to give patients and families more hope. I, I really appreciate it. When I first was listening to your podcast, I was realizing that I haven't heard many, if any discussions like this outside of just, you know, between friends or, you know, I feel very lucky to have people in my life who are open to talking about grief and talking about the realities of, of illness, but I hadn't heard a podcast like yours. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And it made me think also a lot of the time when my dad was going through his diagnosis and I was his caregiver. And I think it's interesting being both a patient and a caregiver. And I would have so appreciated your podcast during that time that I was uh, dealing with, um, just balancing that. Uh, I think when I was a patient, it was more just put your head down and, and get through it, you know, and whereas a caregiver is more having to kind of balance a lot, um, including the grief part and the realities of the day to day. Where do you think this podcast fits into survivorship? So, you know, even if you have an illness, but it's a serious diagnosis, even if it's curable, right? Even if you're going to survive it, do you feel that the podcast has any place for people like yourself? Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I honestly think that palliative care shouldn't be an end of life only thing. I think it's about quality of life. And so the work that I do with helping people write their stories, you know, these kinds of topics come up a lot. And I think that 
if your podcast were somehow given to people upon their diagnosis, it would just make those conversations more okay to have, Mm -hmm. because I find that a lot of people are thinking the thoughts. A lot of patients are thinking them, but they're afraid of scaring each other, you know, their family members, or they're afraid of coming across as if they don't have hope or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas when they're able to do things like, um, you know, write their feelings and talk with other patients about their feelings, then, like I was saying, I have, I actually gain hope from being around people who have a metastatic diagnosis because it just takes some fear out and helps to, to hear some of the realities and, and be able to talk frankly about my own feelings. And so I think that if we wait to have these conversations, it's just too, too late. It's, it's too unfortunate when it could really benefit a quality of life mm-hmm. all, all throughout the diagnosis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've hit the nail on the head for us. The waiting room revolution is about being open, honest, and truthful. It's about talking about a possible future so people can prepare and live in what we call grounded hope rather than an unrealistic hope. It's the heart of the revolution, really, this idea of walking two roads, which is hope for the best and plan for the rest. I think, so your first key definitely is the one that resonates with me the most, I think, um, when I look back at my own cancer experience, I think I was too in the weeds, um, and was surrounded by too many people who were just really scared, you know? And, and so I don't feel like I had anyone to help me kind of guide what my experience was. I do feel fortunate that I had a positive experience. Things seemed to line up for me Mm -hmm. and I didn't, I know now how how poorly some people, you know, their experience can be, and they don't even know they're allowed to get a second opinion or, you know, take any charge in their experience. For me, I was lucky and, um, have been very happy with the care that I've received. And in fact, my oncologist is, is a dear friend now. So, yeah. Was it difficult to put on a brave face for everyone? That's such a good question. I think the, the bravest face was for my child. We, my husband and I were really clear from the beginning that we would talk to her at, you know, age appropriately and be open within our house that I was going to need to be leaving the house. Like up until that point, you know, I was home all the time with her and then all of a sudden I was gone for, for chemo. And then I wasn't feeling well. And then I went through surgery and she couldn't climb all over me. And so we didn't want her to not know that we knew that it was hard. Um, and so I felt like I tried to really kind of orchestrate an experience for her that in retrospect, maybe was pretty exhausting to try to do for her. The good thing is that my husband and my in-laws were very involved. And so it wasn't, um, just me trying to do that with her or anything like that, but I quickly, ended up curating kind of a close group of friends who I could be myself with. I would say there were some friends who it did take more energy and I just didn't have it necessarily in that moment. And so I think, you know, maybe that's the zooming out. I just knew that I didn't have the energy to put a brave face on for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was the key was, was my next question is called about the ripple effects, Mm. that it's not just about the patient, but it affects Mm -hmm. 
you know, there's ripples around and we actually talk about forming an inner crew or your, yes. or your, your, your close, you know, your close circle. And it's, I'm just curious, like, how were they affected? Cause, and how did they support you, but also how were they affected, including your daughter? I guess she would be in your inner circle too. You know what, yeah. Sam, when I was reading yeah. Corey, April's uh, interview, uh, they refer to it as a, your cancer tribe. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, I like that. Do you like mm-hmm. April? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It feels very true because it's, it is like kind of circling the wagons right around you. Um, so we, I live in a multi-generational house. My in-laws have an apartment on, on the second floor of our house. And so, and they were here when that was happening for me. And one of the things that we had decided as a family, when we decided to move in together, which was a few years prior to that, was that we would help each other go through the hard things that, that might be coming is we were of course, mostly thinking about my in-laws aging. We didn't realize that my cancer was going to be the thing that came next, but we went into it with eyes wide open in the sense of being there for each other and wanting to help each other. So almost right away, I remember my father-in-law kind of became the, the chief information officer. And he was like, don't Google anything. I will I'll look up anything you want to know. He was the one who kind of took on the, took in the bills as they arrived, you know, started being the one who would call insurance for me, which was really nice because in my marriage, that's kind of my role. That's not really my husband's strength. And so it was nice to have someone who could take that over. Whereas my husband tends to be the, the protector. And so he was the one who kind of negotiated with, um, my, you know, for my time when people wanted to come visit, you know, was it a good day to just leave a meal on the porch or was it a good day to actually, you know, come in? And he would also kind of be the one to be like, is it time for a nap? Are you, you know, do you want to go lay down? And that was kind of hard too, because my daughter didn't like seeing me not up and playing with her, you know, so he managed that between us. And, um, and it did make a really nice, safe space for us. I think that my daughter didn't know any other experience. So she didn't know that it was strange. She did find it frustrating. And the hardest part of our whole experience did come when I had to wean her because of chemo. And then I realized months and months later that she thought she would resume nursing. And I, I guess I didn't, wasn't very clear that I was having a surgery and that we weren't going to be doing that, you know? And so I retrospectively kind of regretted maybe not setting her up for that. I don't know if I could have, but she then had her own grief process that she had worked through, which I wasn't expecting. I didn't realize that others in my circle would, would have their own grief at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not only supporting your journey, but every, the closer someone is to your inner, you know, core, uh, the more they're going to have their own journey. Exactly. Your daughter, your in-laws, your husband, your father um, are walking two journeys, yours and theirs, you know, vicariously. Yeah, exactly. And I think I really realized that later when I became my dad's caregiver. And even though I had had a cancer experience, his was his own and a very different one. He, you know, was stage four pancreatic and that's different from breast or stage three. And then also my role was different than my brother's role, you know, in our family too. So there's all these, like you said, ripples coming out too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
I find it so interesting, but it doesn't surprise me that you were more comforted when you would lean in closer to the cancer experience mm-hmm. than hiding from it, that you purposely um, involved yourself and, and created quite, um, you feel you're filling quite a gap uh, with the work that you're doing uh, with with patients who have survived cancer. So that's a great segue to talk about your other work. I mean, one of the things that you lead is the Wildfire magazine, which focuses on young breast cancer survivors and their stories. So I'd love to know what made you want to create this magazine after going through this very long journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that struck me, well, two things struck me right in the aftermath of my own diagnosis. And um, one was that I hadn't yet met anyone else who was young. And it, this was, I was diagnosed in 2012. And so it was a slightly different time in terms of social media and the way people are finding each other now. Um, if there were Facebook groups and things like that happening, then I just wasn't, I didn't even know to start searching for them. Mm -hmm. I did go to a few support groups that were in my area, but they were either all cancer or the women diagnosed with breast cancer were much older than me. Mm -hmm. And so I was really struggling to figure out how to live a life past diagnosis with a young child, with, you know, career stuff with now with infertility, um, happening early menopause at 35. Like I just really wanted to find others who I I mostly just wanted to see how they were doing it, you know, so I would have a clue how to do it myself. The other thing I was realizing that surprised me was that cancer had become part of my identity as much as maybe I didn't want it to be. It was part of who I was. I was still having regular appointments. I was still having the, all the anxiety, you know, that it was coming back. I maybe even more because, you know, when you're going through treatment, you have a whole host of people around you who are keeping an eye out. And then all of a sudden I was out in the world by myself and I didn't know how to, how to do that anymore. I felt like a brand new person. So I really wanted to find the other people who were diagnosed young. I've been a writer my whole life. I just use writing to process traumas. Um, like I said, my mom had died prior to my breast cancer. And so I had used writing to process that as well as, you know, my teens and everything going on. Um, my mom had a personality disorder, so I had a lot of processing to do. So I had been writing all through my own cancer experience. And so I was looking for others who were also writing. And this idea came to me to gather writing in a magazine to make a space where we could read each other's stories, see each other's images, and maybe that it would feel like something we made for ourselves. It would look like a younger community. And so from day one, I set out to make it really beautiful. I didn't know what in the world I was doing. I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't an entrepreneur prior to that. I wasn't a magazine publisher. I just had this strong need to find others and to hear their stories. And I published the first uh, issue of it in 2016. It was really um, small, very bloggish. My daughter's actually on the cover of that one. You know, I just did what I knew how to do. And um, yeah, but the things that have stayed the same is that every other month I publish, now it's in print, it's um, got 30 contributors in each one. It's people from all over the world. 
what we all have in common is we were all diagnosed under 50, at least initially. I have all stages of breast cancer represented in every issue. And I publish on themes related to survivorship. So um, I'm just um, finishing up working on a money and cancer issue. It's the first one we've done that's um, money-based. Just prior to this, we did a body issue. We do intimacy, we do fertility, mental health, you know, all of the topics that we're all grappling with. They like to boil it down and then help people really tell their stories. And it's, it's been incredible really has. You know what? I, I looked at the cover of the mag. They are so gorgeous. It is like coffee table, gorgeous magazines. They're so beautiful. You've done such a good job. And you know, that's just the cover of them. I know what's inside is even better. Um, And you know, it, it reminds me that you are employing coping mechanisms that you've used your entire life to face yet another challenge. Um, So April style has stayed true to herself in many ways, even though cancer changed things about you. Your core is still April. You're a writer and you're creative uh, and you're artistic and you enjoy other people. Uh, you're social and personable. Um, we talk about that in our podcast, know your style, know what works for you and gets you through hardships and know what actually doesn't work for you and, and, you know, exploit all of that as best you can. Yes. You know what? We don't do that well though, in healthcare, we don't sit people down like April and say, okay, April, you know, blah, blah, blah about the breast cancer. But, um, you know, this is going to be one of the biggest challenges that you're going to be facing. And so let's talk about you. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about what you need to get through this. Um, Let's talk about what you've used in the past to get over huge hurdles. And you've had them, April. So there was a lot about you that could have been harnessed and brought forward right from the beginning. Like you are a survivor in many ways, not just of breast cancer, but you're a sweet, young looking person who is fierce and brave and strong in so many ways. And I'm wondering if you feel that it would have been helpful to tease that stuff out of you and remind you of who you are and that that stuff will stay the same no matter what twist and turn comes your way. Thank you so much for saying all of that. Um, but yes, I think you're really hitting on something because you're right that we don't lose that person that we were when we get this new diagnosis. And you're absolutely right that the things that we've just instinctually gathered to get through other hardships And I've never once met one person who breast cancer or any cancer is the first hard thing, you know, they've ever had come along in life. So you're right. Those things that they've learned or we've gathered will help. And I think you're right that that would have been really nice to hear and really reassuring because I maybe thought that there was some new magic thing that was going to get me through that I didn't know yet how to find or where to look. And it's so interesting in, in helping people to, to process through writing their stories that the stories that often come up, even in a cancer workshop 
our stories about moms, dads, pregnancy loss, you know, there's other stories of tough times that come out because it's, it's all layered, right? We can't process one without also processing all the others. And you're absolutely right that we use the same tools through it all. And there are natural medicines really. Mm -hmm. um, oh, well, and the flip side of that is sometimes we do things that are not helpful. We mm -hmm. know that too, right? So, I mean, when I look back at some of the biggest hurdles I've had to go through, I would say, you know, it wasn't always pretty, <laughs> but I could be reminded that my tendency is for whatever I'm not going to say in this podcast. And so I'll just let people imagine. <laughs> and that maybe I want to just be aware of that. It's just bringing awareness to who you are and these layers and who your people are. Yeah. So, you know, we have all these people who say, I just can't understand why my sister has disappeared. Like she's mm. not coming to my side during this horrible experience. And, you know, you'd probably look back and say, what was your relationship like with your sister? How did your sister deal with things, hardships in her life in the past? And bingo, suddenly you realize it, it's not about this experience. It's about how your sister has coped. And so mm -hmm. there's so many things about who we are that are incredibly illuminating and empowering and powerful that mm -hmm. we don't exploit or harness as we should. My coping mechanism from the very beginning was writing and just needing to get it out of my head, especially in the middle of the night and put it down somewhere. And I am a person who likes feedback. So for me, a blog was a good place for it because also then people who are asking, you know, what's going on, I could direct them to something like that. But I think too, part of what maybe helped me get through this was the fact that I had had, um, this experience of my mom dying prior and having grown up with a parent with a personality disorder meant that me and my brothers had to come up with coping mechanisms between us. And one of those later, when, once I was an adult was, um, seeking therapy. And so when I was going through my cancer experience, that became what I talked to my therapist about. I've, I've had her for many years by my side. And so I think that I had learned as a child, as a young adult to express the things that I was going through and whether it was through writing or speaking. And I think that that probably is really what helped to carry me through because I wasn't just keeping it all inside. I knew that that's where the darkness grows. And so if I could let it out into the light of day, let my family know what I was going through and not carry it alone, then it hopefully wouldn't drag me down. You talked about caring for your dad. <clears throat> with pancreatic cancer. And I'm curious, was there any things, strategies that you learned from your journey that you knew you had to employ with your dad that maybe made it just a little bit better? Such a good question. You know, I was really, for, for me, it almost was a healing opportunity from my own cancer experience to get to use some of the things I had learned about cancer to help him through his, those things were really, um, 
practical. Like I knew that his mouth wouldn't feel the same going through chemo, things wouldn't taste the same. And so I knew, oh, you know, he really likes rice pudding. So I will make a whole bunch of rice pudding because that's what also helped me. Like those kinds of things really helped. And then he is the one who showed me how powerful it was to be sharing his stories. Um, I got about six months with him from diagnosis to the time he passed and he lived only about 30 minutes away from me. So I spent every single day with him during that time. And so that's a lot of driving to chemo, sitting with him in chemo, and then also being at the house with him. And he told me all of his stories during that time. You know, the stories of my childhood, his childhood, I grew up on 50 acres. He told the story of the land Mm -hmm. and he really, or maybe we gave each other the power of that storytelling as solace, as community, as legacy. And it really, um, I, it, it, I can't hardly even put into words how powerful that was for me. And I'm just so relieved that I could give that to him. I could just be present for him during this, this period of, of real significance for him in his life. Yeah. Was there anything April that you would want healthcare providers to know, um, that wasn't helpful? Like, do you remember mm. moments like I'm thinking when that person at your bedside was looking at your breast tissue and crying, not helpful, not, not helpful. helpful. Okay. Not but helpful. were there, were there other small or big things that you can think about that you want all the healthcare providers that are going to listen to this to know? Yeah. You know, I've thought about it. Um, I actually have helped women write letters to healthcare providers, um, especially women who've had a delayed diagnosis in, in the young breast cancer community that can happen where you're just told you're too young to have breast cancer. And so it takes a long time to get there. So, um, in doing that work with women, I've looked back at my own experience and wondered like, you know, even though I had a very positive experience, I felt like I had expediency were there moments. And one area that I wish could have been a little bit different was that if from the very beginning, someone would have said, I think you might want to bring someone with you Mm. because I ended up at, um, at that very first appointment where I had my mammogram and then an ultrasound and then got told I was going to have a biopsy. I was alone in that appointment, which maybe would have been okay if, a a care provider had been with me the whole time. But what ended up happening is during the course of the ultrasound, the tech left. And I ended up in a room by myself for about a half hour. And it was one of the darkest moments of my entire experience because the mind just runs and I knew something bad was happening and no one was there to, you know, just hold my hand and say, okay, just breathe and we'll face this, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, we'll face it together. Instead, I really felt my mind unraveling and as the anxieties really grew. So I guess that's just one area where Mm -hmm. if someone could have said during the scheduling or some part of the process, like, you know, this is a serious appointment, maybe, maybe it's going to turn out to be nothing, but it would be really helpful to, to have a friend or, Mm -hmm. or a spouse with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really good advice. And again, you remind me of something Sienna and I have 
talked about a lot and actually named our movement or our revolution after the waiting room. So this idea that, you know, the physical waiting room is just so awful, but the, um, you know, the um, philosophical waiting room is just as bad, like just lying there waiting yeah. by yourself. Uh, I, I remember I had an ultrasound of my, and my armpit uh, mm -hmm. because I felt a bump. This is mm -hmm. some years ago. And because of the work that I do, of course, my mind went to the darkest places. And uh, I remember getting the ultrasound, being there by myself. Um, the ultrasound tech had like a very poker face. And I was looking at every single speck of her face to see yes. if I could pick up on anything. And she had been trained well, there was nothing. And then I said, oh, she would smile if it was fine. Mm. Oh, it's bad. Then she left the room to get the radiologist. I thought, why would the radiologist come in? I, I you know, probably because they knew this was a doctor lying on the table. I don't know if a radiologist comes in every time for the average ultrasound, but I, it alarmed me that she was going to get yes. the radiologist. Anyway, I, I'm fine. It ended up being fine. But I just remember those moments uh, yeah. being like, oh my God, it's, I'm about to get a diagnosis. I'm, mm -hmm. It's about to come. Like this is yeah. my final moment before I'm told. Yeah. It's very scary waiting. And we think that getting any information is better than just being suspended like that. Yes. Bring it on. If you're going to tell me, just come back in the room and just tell me. Right. Yes. Because otherwise you're, like you said, you're left trying to come up with the information yourself based on the lack of information that you've been given. And it's scary. Yes. The waiting. Is any information better than none? Yeah, I think so. Because I have experienced other situations, you know, where I've been told no news is good news. And then that isn't necessarily true, you know? And so I think I'm a advocate of just communication, you know, at every step of the way, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Or at least knowing who the people are on your team, who you can go to for answers. I've learned now um, my, my oncologist will advocate for me almost in any medical situation. Now I've had, you know, other tests and other things. And if, you know, he checks in with me, if I'm waiting on something and he feels it's been too long, he'll send a, he'll send a message for me. So maybe it's also knowing who you can turn to for the answers too. Mm -hmm. You've just gotten yourself busy. That's yes. what you're doing. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I want, I'm so curious if you can tell us what some of your biggest dreams are for wildfire and the work that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I told you how it started as a magazine and along the way, I discovered that people need help to write their stories or permission to write their stories, maybe some writing prompts to get the wheels turning, especially people who haven't ever considered themselves writers, or maybe didn't use that tool to overcome other traumas. Um, so it started gathering people together in small zoom groups and that's been going on since 2020. Mm -hmm. And now, um, I have a podcast also where I bring stories out of the archives and we talk about the craft of writing. So my next thing I would love to do is, is go back to gathering in person and do some writing retreats. I actually got to do one this summer just to try it out where women came from around California 
to a place where we could do writing and hiking and just, you know, be together in nature and be together in community. And of course it's wildfire. So I wanted to burn some of our writing and let go of big things. So that's kind of the next big thing that's on my horizon is getting back to some of those in-person gatherings where we can, mm-hmm. we can actually, you know, hug each other instead of through the zoom screen so much. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what you've been able to do and build this community using social media and virtual platforms, but then not forgetting the power of the written word and paper books and magazines, reading and storytelling and hearing that through each other's own voices. Yeah, it's, it's incredible what's happening online and in a medical space with social media for sure. Mm -hmm but I have compiled kind of the best of, I have seven years of magazines now, so I will have an anthology coming out. Yeah. In October, I'm doing a 50 women under 50 diagnosed with breast cancer kind of anthology too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the anthology is being published, right? And so how will people be able to get it? Will it be in It'll be on Amazon. It'll be um, both in a digital format and in a actual book format as well. Mm And that's just your writing, but you also have a podcast. It's called The Burn. Could you tell us what inspired you to create a podcast? I will say one thing that um, I feel very passionately about is because Wildfire is a community of all stages of breast cancer from you know zero to four, that one thing I really have appreciated that slowly I'm having women come on and read their own stories, read their own writing in their words and getting to record it has been such a wonderful thing to have if they pass away, if something else comes along. And, um, just having that experience right now where I mentioned a friend has just passed away two days ago. And I was so grateful that she did come on to the burn with me and read the story that she had written about her. It was about many generations of breast cancer in her family and to have it on paper is wonderful, but to have her reading her story and to know that I can share that again and again and again, and to have that for her family, that really feeds me, I think right now and lights me up. But I don't, I don't only invite, you know, the metastatic patients to come on with me. I think that hearing our stories in our own words and our own voices is so special. Mm -hmm. And I love getting the backstory, you know, tell us, you know, why did you need to write this story now Mm -hmm. and getting into why, why was it important and where was that vulnerability? And then just getting into the craft of writing and hearing how people use it as a tool of many in survivorship. Mm-hmm. That's been really wonderful to hear. And then, you know, obviously I hear also from listeners who are so inspired by it too. And that, that really lights me up as well. And so why do you think writing the stories and hearing them read aloud? Why is that so powerful? Do you think? Oh, exactly. And I think there's something really important to putting it in your own words, I have experienced that a lot of people in probably all cancers, but in breast cancer, you know, that's my main experience. When we meet one another, we tend to rattle off our diagnosis and, you know, stage, age, type, maybe something about our treatment. And it's all the words we've been given to us by someone else, you know, you described it as this whole different language, you know, and so we take it on and then we say it to each other. But when we, slow down and really get into writing 
what we feel, then we start to put it in our own words and put the emphasis on the parts that are important to us. And sometimes that's really different than maybe someone else telling us what's serious about our experience. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, my whole thing was, how is this going to land with my daughter? Mm -hmm. But, but that wasn't necessarily important to the team that was trying to save my life, you know? So it's, it's different, but I needed to talk about that part. And so that's what came out in my writing. And it's something different for everyone who comes in, but there's these threads of commonality too. Mm -hmm. In the workshops that I do, we always make time to share for anyone who wants to share. And every time someone reads their story, they're, everyone's nodding and everyone is, is saying like, yes, I can recognize myself in that, even if it's slightly different and that adds a layer of healing as well. It's that not being alone in it anymore. We, we, we often end our interviews with, um, a question. So like, um, what advice would you give to patients and families just starting out on their journey? I think the main thing I would say is strive to get to the truth. And whether that's, you know, in conversation with others or just in conversation with yourself and a pen and a paper late at night, I have found that having that as my, my compass, my North star, just always striving to understand the truth of a situation for myself has been an unburdening for me throughout the process and something I can come back to. And sometimes the truth shifts and changes, um, or it's under many, many layers of other truths, but I would just say, stay vulnerable, stay open. And that will make it at least a little less hard. I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you, April, for joining us today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks you guys. Thank you, April. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.